Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm Chris Marquez, a professor at Cornell's Business School. Thank you for attending this live SubChina CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, a show focused on leaders and companies facing the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. Today's webinar is in partnership with the U.S.-China Business Council, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization representing over 200 American companies doing business with China. Today, we're discussing the economic costs of decoupling from China and have two of the leading thinkers on the topic. Craig Allen is president of the USCBC and has a long and distinguished career in U.S. public service, serving a number of positions in Beijing, Taipei, and Tokyo. He is also the former ambassador to Brunei and has served as deputy assistant secretary for China in the U.S. Commerce Department. We also have Alex Mackel, who's an economist at Oxford Economics and a recent co-author, or excuse me, recent author of an Oxford Economics report on the U.S.-China economic relationship, which was produced in partnership with the USCBC. Oxford Economics is an independent economic consultancy specializing in quantitative analyses and employing over 250 professional economists around the world. Craig and Alex, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Great. You know, I'm really looking forward to diving into better understanding the economic implications of uh, U.S.-China policy, in particular the report uh, the organizations has, have worked on. You know, over the last few months, there's been a number of such reports. Reports assessing the U.S.-China policy in the Trump administration uh, and the economic relationship overall. You know, across all these studies, it actually seems the same general conclusion is that the trade policies has had generally a negative economic uh, effect on things like employment, stock market valuations, and also, interestingly, has led to an overall decline in global GDP. Uh, despite this, you know, in the last few days, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai had emphasized that even though there may be an economic toll uh, on businesses and consumers, at least in the short term, the tariffs will be maintained. So to get us started, I just would like to start to level set a general question about the policy objectives of the tariffs and what effect they have. Maybe, you know, Craig, you can start us off. Sure. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, 
when the tariffs were for, first put into place, uh, they were responsive uh, to a 301 investigation initiated by Ambassador Lighthizer working for uh, the Trump administration. And uh, the uh, 301 investigation um, came up with a number of very real market access problems that uh, foreign companies and particular American companies face in accessing uh, the China market. There was a preliminary round of negotiations, they went nowhere. There was a second round of negotiations, they went nowhere. And so to spur those negotiations, uh, the tariffs were put on and then they were ratcheted up. So the Chinese responded in kind and put into place what were essentially reciprocal tariffs. And so today we find ourselves uh, with a tariff rate of approximately 19% on average for Chinese goods coming into the U.S. and 20% on average for U.S. goods going uh, to China. President Trump's original intent was to reduce the bilateral trade deficit between the United States and China. Unfortunately, it did not have that effect. Uh, the U.S. multilateral trade deficit has grown, uh, albeit the trade uh, deficit has shifted around. Some of the exports coming out of uh, China have now shifted to Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, elsewhere. That is uh, the antecedent uh, to the tariffs and the situation that we face today. Alex, maybe you want to comment a little bit about sort of particularly some of the some of the work that you've done uh, to really assess the impact of these tariffs? Yeah, so as part of the, the research that we did with the US-China Business Council, um, we looked at the, the impact of these tariffs on the US economy. And the story goes a lot more deeper than just trade. Um, so we found that the tariffs had an effect on consumer demand because of the effect they have on consumer prices. So the tariffs lead to an immediate shock uh, to import prices, and that leads to higher consumer prices and a decline in real income, spilling over to consumer demand. You also have a significant investment effect. So trade policy uncertainty led to reduced investment by firms um, domestically as well as FDI into, into the United States. Um, then you have a wealth effect. So the fact that this led to significant financial market volatility reduced household wealth and further reduced consumption. And finally, but very significantly, you have a disruption to global supply chains, and that leads to increased input costs that weighs on firms' margins and further ultimately increases consumer prices in the United States. Wow. So, you know, generally across a wide range of, of, of factors has sounds like some 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 negative effects. I'm curious, you know, Craig, maybe I'll turn back to you, um, you know, given your diplomatic background. You know, so, um, you know, U.S. Trade Representative Tai has suggested that even despite these potential uh, effects, we're going to maintain them for a while. Why would she um, maintain that position? Well, Ambassador Tai was very careful when she said that. Uh, she followed that statement that she would not yank the tariffs by saying that she was would be happy to uh, negotiate and to discuss uh, the trade uh, imbalance with the Chinese. And so that, to me, uh, struck me as a very appropriate approach uh, here to look at further reducing trade barriers in China, market access barriers for uh, American exports, while uh, keeping uh, the tariffs uh, in place until an agreement uh, might uh, be reached. I think politically, it would be very challenging to remove the tariffs without some progress in improving market access uh, on the Chinese side. And I must say, that was the original intent of the Trump administration. The Chinese government uh, also has uh, repeatedly uh, reiterated their commitment to this process. The problem is that the clock is ticking, that the agreement is in place until February of 2022, uh, so less than a year from now. So this cannot be delayed indefinitely. And uh, I would expect uh, some movement on this um, within uh, the foreseeable future. Got it. I, I know that the, um, you know, the the report that, that, you know, the two of your organizations did, you know, looks at some of the 
benefits in some ways, economic benefits of, of scaling back the, the tariffs. Uh, would you mind commenting on that so we can sort of understand maybe after, you know, hopefully there is some agreements and things go back to the way they were uh, in the past, what some of the economic effects may be? So first and foremost, the, the trade war that's so far we found has cost the United States economy around 0.5% of its GDP. So there's 0.5% um, lower U.S. gross domestic product or around uh, $108 billion dollars. Um, and that cost the U.S. economy about 245,000 jobs during that period as a result of weaker economic growth. Um, so looking out to the future, we model two alternative scenarios. Um, so we're comparing this to a baseline where essentially tariffs remain at their current level of around 19%. And if we were to de-escalate trade tensions and lower tariffs to around 12%, which is what they were prior, you know, in, a, in early 2019, prior to the big spike in, in uh, tariffs, we would see the U.S. economy produce an additional $160 billion of GDP over the next five years and 145,000 extra jobs by 2025. Um, now, if you pull that down into household income, that's an extra $460 to every household over that period. Um, so there's a significant gain from uh, lowering tariffs in terms of GDP, employment, and real incomes. And can you just, would you mind saying just a little bit about how those calculations uh, and projections are done? I, mean, I don't think we need to get too complex, but just to give our listeners a sense of the rigor behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, all of our calculations were based off of using the Oxford Global Economic Model, which is a macroeconomic model of the world economy. It contains 80 economies, several regional blocks. And essentially, it is a dynamic macro model um, that combines forecasting, short-term forecasting power, so it aligns to real-world data, but also has an inherent economic equilibrium. Um, now, the model's Keynesian in the short run, but monetarist or neoclassical in the long run. So we, we're trying to capture the best of both worlds in terms of balancing real-world economics and, and um, you know, theoretical rigor to the long term as well. The way that we approach this modeling is essentially we also use the GTAP model, which is a model that allows us to capture the effect of tariffs on global trade and trade prices. So the GTAP model informed our analysis of how tariffs would change trade. And then in turn, that tells us how, how much uh, it would affect total factor productivity. So total factor productivity is the efficiency with which the economy uses inputs like capital and labor to produce outputs like goods and services. Now, the way that we, we combine these two is that we, from GTAP, we get our shock to, to total factor productivity based on what happens to trade flows. Then we plug that into the Oxford model to determine long-term total factor productivity. But in the Oxford model, because it's a dynamic model where things like financial markets, policy, and the real economy all interact, we can come up with a solution for what happens to GDP, employment, all these different variables. And that's essentially how we come up with the paths that we, we quote in the report. Yeah, interesting. So you, you sort of, uh, I mean, it's very nuanced in how you're able to break things down and tie them to the specific uh, uh, tariffs. And I, you know, maybe for, for you, Craig, you might be familiar, familiar with this. The uh, one of the questions from our from our viewers is at a little more macro um, level, and it's you know about the relationship between sort of reduced consumption from U.S. consumers, and if we're seeing that, then why is there a continued increase in Chinese exports to to the U.S.? Well, uh, Chinese exports uh, to the U.S., uh, especially in the COVID era, have been able to maintain themselves at a very high level. I don't have the most recent statistics, but they're basically level uh, despite the tariffs. And the reason for that uh, is uh, domestic demand remains very high and demand particularly for electronic products and household durables and uh, other products that we've been gobbling up over the COVID era in large part have uh, come from China. And uh, therefore, while direct exports from China may be level, we're seeing great increases in exports from, say, Cambodia and, and, and Vietnam. And one would presume that Chinese firms are having final assembly or other packaging uh, testing done in third markets uh, for shipping uh, to the United States. Uh, so overall, I don't think that there has been much of a net change uh, at all. 
I'd like to take one second and go back to Alex's comment and just point out one thing. He noted that if tariffs were reduced to 12%, that there would be significant economic gains. And I, he's, he's correct about that. But that would still leave Chinese tariffs at an elevated level and continue to distort uh, the overall bilateral economic relationship between China and the United States, which would probably continue to uh, c- contribute to uh, political distortions as well. So I think that I, I just want to put that out there. We must not accept that these uh, tariffs are permanent, that we could assume that they're going to remain in place eternally. Uh, and indeed, that should remain an um, important issue in economic and trade policy circles uh, until they are removed and we are able to get back to a semblance of normal. I know, Alex, if you wanted to add anything on that uh, point about the consumers. Yeah, I would just maybe maybe add that um, it's important to remember just how extraordinary China's bounce back in terms of the economic shock of COVID-19 has been. Um, so if you look more closely at the time when those tariffs were implemented, U.S. exports to China fell by 18% over 2017 to 2019. Um, now, exports to China right now might be on the rise, but that's largely reflecting that just how extraordinary China's bounce back in economic growth has been. So, so China's import demand has been on the rise as well, particularly in relative terms, given that the other export markets won't be doing as, as well. I'd like to ask you, Craig, uh, you know, we, we've been focusing so far a lot on the economic uh, effects. I mean, of course, an important part of the calculus is, you know, uh, sort of security risk and political factors. You know, I'm curious, how, you know, and that, you know, I think plays a lo- some into, you know, Ambassador Tai's, um, you know, comments as well. Can you comment a little bit about, you know, how to assess that balance between security and economic and, you know, where to potentially draw the line? Well, during uh, the Trump uh, administration, uh, there was uh, very much uh, a focus on national security is economic security and economic security is national security. I fear that the umbrella of national security is growing and growing and growing and covering many areas that typically had not been uh, considered national security uh, trade-related areas. Uh, And uh, the use, uh, for example, of export control law uh, to address uh, human rights concerns would would be one very clear example of that. And uh, also the expansion of export control law uh, to emerging and foundational technologies is is something that, while it may be appropriate, uh, it is also a significant expansion of traditional definitions. Um, I think on the Chinese side as well, um, there is uh, an ever-expanding kind of set of industries that are considered national security uh, uh, importance. And certainly in the 14th five-year plan discussions, uh, we heard about energy uh, self-reliance, agriculture self-reliance, and technology self-reliance. And while none of them are really new, there does seem to be an increased emphasis uh, on each of these uh, and a will, if you will, to pull back from international interdependence on both sides, uh, which I think has profound future implications, not limited uh, to the innovative industries. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's two sides of the coin. And we started out talking about the U.S., but obviously there's Chinese, um, you know, exactly the same types of, of sort of strategies and plans. I don't know, Alex, if you had any sort of thoughts around that from an economics uh, standpoint on sort of the China Chinese focus on self-reliance, things like dual circulation, the 14th five-year plan. Yeah, so so as as kind of a, a response to U.S. policy directed towards decoupling with China, what we've seen is China accelerate its movement towards to, towards shifting growth to more domestic factors, domestic drivers. So if you think about the last decade, growth in China was predominantly driven by exports and foreign direct investment into China. They continue to want to open up their economy, which is why they call it dual circulation, maintenance of external opening as well as domestic policy. But they also want to see an increased reliance on domestic consumption and domestic business investment so that that becomes one of the key drivers of growth. And that will reduce their exposure to, to decoupling. They've also on the production side, they've 
significantly increase the emphasis on investment into high tech sectors. So they want to become less reliant on United States and to, to some extent other advanced economies for high tech, high tech imports in order to generate high tech outputs and products. Um, one sort of interesting uh, question, which I'm going to direct to Craig, that's come in from the audience. Um, uh, you know, so it's the, the if the tariff is not achieved its goal, which you know we've talked that there might be some mixed out of evidence uh, on that, and talking is not doing any better. You know, obviously in Alaska there was some, you know, sort of. Um, you know, sort of more contentious discussion and sort of some of the actions afterwards, you know, what would you recommend as far as the uh, sort of policy and economic uh, relations with China? Well, I, I think that uh, at the end of the day, uh, the multilateral trade balances, either surplus or deficit, are related uh, to macroeconomic conditions in both countries, and that China's uh, excessive uh, multilateral trade surpluses are due to excessive savings, and America's um, multilateral trade deficit is uh, due to a, a uh, n insufficient savings. And uh, household income in China is uh, far too low. Um, and that does absolutely need to be addressed um, by increasing wages uh, in China, by improving uh, the welfare net, uh, the, uh, the social safety net, uh, so that uh, by improving hukou, um, so that uh, Chinese uh, migrant workers aren't forced to save some 50-60% of their salary. Um, this has been a, a very slow process. I think uh, that while the Chinese have uh, iterated that they wish to increase uh, domestic consumption and household income, uh, actually making that transition from an investment-led economy to a consumption-led economy is a very difficult thing to do. And I think having uh, discussions on that uh, is an important step forward. I also think um, having discussions on the more, if you will, industry-specific uh, microeconomic market access policies is critically important. The European uh, Comprehensive Agreement on Investment kind of touched upon many of these issues, but not a lot of progress was made. The Chinese need to open up their domestic uh, economy uh, and make it these internal markets much more competitive and welcoming to both private investment in China and uh, foreign investment um, from outside of China. And uh, that is very much in Chinese interest. And I think uh, comprehensive dialogues along these lines are, are critically needed. There needs to be a lot more discussion on this uh, to encourage the Chinese to provide a level playing field for foreign companies. Uh, currently, as many as 77% of uh, companies that we survey suggest that they uh, do not enjoy a level playing field in China relative to state-owned enterprises. And that, that's a huge net drag on Chinese GDP and Chinese competitiveness and uh, foreign companies' abilities uh, to export to China. So discussions with the Chinese on these subjects, I think, are very important uh, and should be uh, resumed at the earliest possible opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to think about how, you know, as you know, as we talked about in an earlier question, how to define what's security and then, you know, um, you know, where to open things up. And clearly, the, you know, the Chinese have been much more in some ways in encompassing of its definition of, of security. And hopefully, as you mentioned, that through dialogue, you know, it is in their economic interest to open many of these industries up more. And so, yeah, I think that's hopefully an area. Uh, of improvement in the future. I'm curious, you know, a lot of our discussion so far has been a little negative in, in, in some ways, you know, so, you know, these negative effects on the US, the negative effects of China. You know, I'd like to talk a little bit about the effect of the Chinese and Chinese companies in the US. I mean, the implicit assumption, I think, underlying, you know, some of this economic policy is that, you know, if China is doing 
good, then it must be that the U.S. is 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 doing bad. And I know, you know, some of the work has looked at like on the more on the positive side, how the U.S. has benefited from trade and investment flows with China. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Maybe, you know, Alex, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So our, our report wanted to do a, a deep dive into some of the, the, the gains from trade and investment ties between the United States and China. Um, as you say, people tend to focus on the negatives. Um, so our report tries to balance that out a little, but we do we do consider the negatives in turn as well and make sure we, we, we address them. Um, so in terms of exports, um, China is the world's fastest growing economy in dollar terms. Um, so China will be responsible for a third of uh, global growth over the next decade. Um, Oxford Economics forecasts China to become the world's largest economy by 2030. And decoupling or not, that's probably going to take place. Um, so China is going to be a significant export market for the United States and other countries um, or potential export market um, for, for a long time to come. Um, so U.S. exports to China, we actually estimated how many jobs are tied to U.S. exports to China, and we arrived at 1.2 million jobs in the United States. And that is we, the way we estimated that is looking at the um, employment output out, uh, out to employment multipliers quoted by Implan. So essentially, every dollar of production in the United States has a certain number of jobs tied to it. And so by, by looking at export products by category, we can we can kind of estimate how many jobs are tied to exports to China. Um, and it combines not just the direct effects, but also the spillovers to other industries through supply chains within the United States. So, so as I said, we got to, to 1.2 million jobs. In terms of imports as well, um, imports from China mean there are essentially cheaper goods for, for U.S. consumers. So if you think about things like furniture or clothing that are, that are produced in China, as well as electronics, um, and the supply chain effects there are really significant when it comes to electronics. The U.S. exports semiconductors or has exported semiconductors to China in large quantities, and China has then assembled things like smartphones, to, um, smart TVs that get re-exported re back into the United States. So this means lower prices for consumers as well. Now, just to kind of balance that out, there were some, there have been tensions that have arisen from the effect of cheap in Chinese imported goods on the U.S. manufacturing sector, and that's one of the areas that led to the tensions that ultimately triggered the the trade war. If you look at that in more detail, what you see is that the reason that it was so, it seemed so costly, is because of the geographic concentration of those job losses. But actually, on aggregate. The United States has benefited from from imports from China in terms of real income and employment, but those gains have been spread out more across the country. So it's a very interesting dynamic in that certain regions of the United States and certain manufacturing sectors have seen, I wouldn't say necessarily jobs lost, but an acceleration of the decline in manufacturing employment as a result of those imports. But the but they've been offset by gains in other sectors and other parts of the country. It's just been more spread out. Um, and then if we look at investment as well, bilateral investment flows um, have benefited both both economies. So the United States has invested heavily into China. Um, they, the United States companies earned $40 billion in net income in 2018 off of their investments in China. So it's a, it's a huge market. And as I said, going to be one of the biggest growth markets in the world, particularly on the consumer side, as middle, the middle class in China continues to, to rise. Um, so that, that investment into China um, is very be beneficial, not just to U.S. multinational corporations, but also to the U.S. economy more broadly. So we found evidence that U.S. multinational investment into China um, leads to increased investment domestically um, and also an increase in total factor productivity of suppliers domestically. So those multinational firm suppliers tend to have knowledge spillovers from their investments in China as well. Um, now, China's also invested into the United States somewhat. That's been disrupted by the effects of the trade war and different different policies. But generally speaking, again, as, you, as China continues to grow, you would expect the level of potential investment from China coming into the US to, to increase, barring you know, barriers to, to trade and investment. Um, now, these are the kind of tangible, very, very measurable impacts that we see on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of trade and investment flows. But the other thing that our report highlighted is that the real benefit to both economies is how this spills over to total factor productivity. So gains through trade, gains through, through FDI, cross-border FDI flows, ultimately translate into increased productivity for both economies through increased competition, specialization, and generally what, what are called in economics the gains from trade, comparative advantage. 
So it's that increase in total factor productivity that's really boosted the U.S. economy through through engaging with China. Craig, did you have anything else on that? Well, I th- I think it is very interesting to look at Chinese investment in the United States, and I regret to say that the number of Americans employed by Chinese companies has declined uh, over the last three years, as there has been some uh, divestment. But as Alex said, um, a lot of the Chinese investment uh, coming that what had been coming into the United States is concentrated in uh, industries and in sectors that um, that uh, perhaps are characterized by a lot of brownfield facilities. Um, uh, for example, we've seen significant Chinese investment in the auto, automotive parts industry, and anyone who's watched the wonderful film American Factory uh, will appreciate that. But there are other examples, uh, paper mills or, or yarn spinning, some uh, food processing facilities uh, as well. And what I, I think it's useful to highlight that a lot of the Chinese investment in the United States is, is not going to either of the coasts, but uh, much of it is going to relatively poorer parts of the United States that are lacking investment in infrastructure or in new facilities and areas that uh, need uh, new employment. And so I think that as China's multilateral trade balances increase and China needs to recycle uh, a lot of that money uh, in 2021 and late 20 and 2021 and maybe going into 2022, that there's going to be a lot more interest in this topic uh, and uh, a demand on the Chinese side for outbound investment. And I think in the U.S. that leads to many interesting questions uh, about uh, the degree to which we should uh, welcome that with open arms, uh, the degree to which um, uh, national security concerns might, may, may be legitimate. Uh, but that uh, topic will be heating up as a result of uh, China's relatively robust uh, recovery from COVID and their large export surpluses uh, of late. Interesting. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. Really appreciate both of your sort of putting a lot of sort of nuance and sort of fine grained understanding to, you know, how this works both ways and that there is a lot of really positive sort of externalities and other effects of China Chinese business um, in the U.S. You know, we have a lot of questions, which is great. Really appreciate everyone um, uh, adding them. So a couple, you know, uh, we'll, we'll try to get through. One, um, ask about the wealth effect. And this, you know, I, uh, I'm going to ask you about, the, I think there's the, the Fed report that talks about stock market reaction. And the question actually uh, describes how, um, you know, the wealth effect assumes the tariffs would cause a drop in stock prices, but stock prices rose tremendously in 2020. So why do you assume uh, tariffs had negative wealth effect? And I think this actually, the question is the opposite, I think, of what the Fed report says. So would you guys please uh, clarify that? Maybe Alex, we'll start with you. Yeah, so so much like the the real economy, um, you know, when we say that the the, the tariffs and the trade will cost the real economy 0.5% of of GDP, that's 0.5% off what it has grown otherwise. And during that time, the US economy was performing very strongly. Um, a lot of that was driven by continued recovery from the financial crisis and also um, tax cuts implemented under President Trump's Tax Cut um, Act. So although the economy was growing quickly, the tariffs still slowed that down. And the same is true of the stock market. So the stock market was was doing very well during that period. Um, and uh, that was also linked partly to the, to the tax cuts, um, but but the research from the Federal Reserve as well as our own modeling suggests that it would have grown further. That is that these tariffs did have a negative effect on the value of the stock market. So the stock market performed well. It could have performed in, you know better than it did, and I think that's that that's the key point to take away there is that is that you know the effects of the trade war. Sometimes I think people underestimate them a little bit because they were they, they the trade war went on during a period where domestic demand was very strong, so they're a little bit kind of um, lost in that. Um, but but the, the yeah the research from the Federal Reserve was very interesting. Is they looked at the exposure of different firms and their linkages to China. So they're not just firms that export directly to China, but also multinational firms that have sales in China. 
and they combined that also with the with the disruption to global stock markets um, following the tariffs. So they did find a significant and permanent shock to stock markets following the impact of tariffs. Um, so if you look more at the daily data, especially, you'll see just how how disruptive those policy announcements were on global stock markets. Um, now, sometimes as well, you don't need the stock market to decline persistently in order to increase financial market volatility. The volatility in itself can be disruptive to investment. Um, and the Fed's research actually then maps the shock to the stock market onto firms book to value ratios. Um, so it essentially looks at how this affected firm profitability and from, from firm profitability, they then go to investment and they found a really significant investment effect. So as a result of the trade war, they found that um, it would have shaved 1.6 percentage points off of growth in 2020. Now, obviously, growth in 2020 was massively disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. But with that, absent that or in addition to that, we have this effect from the tariffs and that it would have really significantly disrupted U.S. investment. And that's domestic U.S. investment. Really interesting. And it really shows the value of the of sort of these detailed econometric analyses in the reports. And I'll, you know, mention we're, we're, we'll, you know, in the SubChina email that follows up from this to, uh, tomorrow, I think, we will include links to these different reports. I mean, so there's the one done by Oxford Economics and the, the USCBC. I think the US Chamber of Commerce uh, has one, the Fed one that Alex was just uh, referring to. And then there's also one from the IMF. And that also is a really interesting one because it looks at overall global uh, impact. And I would one of you like to say a little bit about, about the IMF report? I don't know, either Craig or Alex, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Um, so the IMF report just came out uh, very uh, hot off the press. And I think it's uh, very interesting because it focuses on technology uh, decoupling and what might be the impact uh, on technology uh, decoupling. It takes as its premise that there are more than two uh, 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 countries uh, involved in the international innovation ecosystem. Uh, so it's a very sophisticated model. And it uh, looks at three factors, the reduction of global trade flows as a result of tech decoupling, sectoral misallocation or wasted investment, if you will, and lower foreign knowledge diffusion uh, across uh, borders. And uh, so this is a very ambitious uh, study because it's kind of hard to model uh, knowledge diffusion uh, in a mathematical sense. But I think uh, it's uh, profoundly useful uh, in terms of uh, the potential impact, uh, according to the IMF, is a loss of uh, up to 0.75% uh, of global GDP growth uh, in the future. That's a very large number uh, and impacts uh, literally millions and millions of, of, of jobs on a global basis. So the IMF, I think, has done us a very good favor here by trying to quantify uh, the impact uh, on, of technology restrictions and uh, uh, barriers uh, to knowledge uh, diffusion. And uh, I think uh, worthy of consideration by all. Yeah. That, and I think, I mean, it really highlights that, that, you know, we have these global webs of commerce and supply chains. And it's, you know, I know that there's a lot of focus sort of bilaterally, and we're talking about China and the U.S. as if they're sort of separate entities. But I think that report really nicely, you know, illustrates that the, you know, the world economy, you know, as a whole, what, what was affected, not just the, you know, either China or the U.S. Uh Thinking about things sort of beyond a bilateral perspective, I want to dive actually a little bit into some of the industries that are highlighted in some of these reports. Uh, and so one of the industries is semiconductors. And I think you talk about it some in your report. I think the, the chamber report talks about it as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of our questioners uh, has... It brings it actually introduces Taiwan into the into the fat into the mix, which is obviously important when you think about semiconductors. So, you know, how do you think about you know sort of I don't know the expert controls, et cetera, uh, in the chip sector will hit the U.S. chip makers, and then also you know what effect does that have on uh, sort of Taiwan? And the question also goes on to ask you know how will China deal with a company like TSMC in Taiwan? 
So, um, yeah, I think that the semiconductor industry really brings home this idea of global supply chains and how they affect um, the, the impacts of these types of policies. So if you think about the semiconductor industry, the United States is a global leader in semiconductor production. Over 50% of semiconductors are produced in the United States. But they export a large amount of this to Asian economies, including China, but not, not as finished products, obviously, but in order for those economies and China to assemble the finished products. So semiconductors, various other parts are sent to China where and they move down the supply chain where they then get assembled. Uh, into smartphones, smart TVs, other other electronic devices, even cars use a large amount of semiconductors. And then some of those will be re-exported back to the United States. So in essence, um, the key thing to keep in mind there is that that will ultimately lead to higher prices for US consumers as well. Um, it kind of shows that um, however you, you think about these types of policies, whether it's tariffs or export controls, applying those to another country involved in your own supply chain network will really affect your own domestic economy as well quite significantly, more than just through the, the standard reduce, reduce trade close channel. It will actually increase input costs and lead to higher prices down the line. So, so the semiconductor industry is where this is the most affected by this because there's such strong supply chain linkages between the United States and China. Um, and just in general, global electronics has some of the most diverse and intricate supply chain linkages. Um, it is a highly, highly um, global industry. And I think that kind of tying this back to the IMF's report, um, the IMF's report looking at the risks of the world splitting up into multiple technological hubs and how other economies will respond to that. So you can think about the US and China decoupling, but you can't think about that in isolation. Well, how will other economies respond to this? Will they choose, uh, particularly if the United States and China form two separate technology networks and those technology networks don't overlap? So, for example, countries in the European Union, Japan, other emerging Asian countries, do they choose to couple with the United States or with China or with both? Now, if, even if they choose to couple with both because they want to remain somewhat connected to both markets, that represents a really significant increase in cost because then you have to accommodate both forms of technology. So if the two technologies continue to diverge or two technological networks continue to diverge, again, you just have higher prices, higher input costs, higher prices for everyone. Now, in a situation where countries are forced into choosing one of the two technology networks, that's where you start to see things can get really bad for the world economy. Um, and in, in the case of decoupling between the United States and China, that's where the IMF's report found some of the most significant impacts for the United States if a lot of the other economies just simply decide to couple their technology network to China rather than the United States. So there, the, they actually found the US would lose around 3% of GDP by, um, by I think, 2030. Um, so that would, that would be a really significant shock to economic output. That's actually around double our own decoupling scenario. And that scenario saw a reduced uh, level of household income of $6,400. So you could imagine something on, of the order of double that over the next 10 years. So we're seeing a great deal of government interest uh, in this subject in Europe, in um, China, and in the United States. And a tremendous amount of investment being directed into the semiconductor industry by uh, governments. I would expect uh, the CHIPS Act to pass the U.S. Congress uh, before too long, perhaps as a uh, part of a larger package. And also the Chinese uh, government is uh, subsidizing uh, to a gargantuan degree uh, investment uh, in the semiconductor industry has not gone over well. Those incentives uh, for investment have uh, not uh, produced uh, very good results in terms of globally competitive uh, chips in China. Um, but it, it is from an economic perspective, enormously wasteful, pouring just all of these tens of billions of dollars uh, into these uh, facilities. Um, and over time, um, for the Chinese to try and build up uh, a domestic or indigenous capabilities here is going to be just an incredibly expensive uh uh, campaign that's going to have to last decades. And one has to wonder if this is the best way uh, to uh, approach the industry. 
I, I thought that uh, the Chamber and Rhodium Group's uh, report has uh, a very good chapter on semiconductors that I would commend uh, to everyone's attention. And it suggests that uh, decoupling between the United States and China in semiconductors could lead to a decline of 100,000 jobs and 54 to $124 billion over several years. This, this is really big and important. And uh, government policy, industrial policy is being made as we speak. So it behooves us all to pay uh, attention uh, to this. Um, this is uh, uh, very much uh, a long-term, um, uh, these are long-term investments. And I'm hopeful that we're uh, able to make them on, on a global basis as efficiently as possible. I'm curious to follow up to that. Uh, you know, around these semiconductor uh, investments, I think you, know, you hit the nail right on the head as far as sort of the wastefulness of the recent past of you know, you know, Chinese government investment in companies like SMIC, uh, et cetera. Uh, but I was wondering if you had any, you know, what the alternative uh, is simply because if you think about security issues, I mean, chips clearly are a huge security bottleneck for, for the future. Is there any other way around this, do you think? I think that the export controls, um, which uh, targeted uh, specific uh, companies, uh, are one approach uh, to this. Um, but uh, for every export control, it elicits uh, investments uh, to indigenize uh, the uh, same cap capabilities uh, as the ones that are being controlled. So export controls have a unintended consequence of uh, leading American companies to be specked out uh, of Chinese procurement plans and for excessive investments to go into areas that are covered by, by controls. So at least in my view, it is um, uh, in America's long-term uh, national security interest to use these controls sparingly and only in the case of very real uh, national security risk uh, rather than uh, kind of generally uh, to prove a, a, a point. Um, and supply chain integration generally is a good thing uh, for American national security. To dominate these markets at the high end is a good thing uh, for American national security. And incentivizing uh, other countries uh, to do what they need to do to uh, defend themselves against that uh, is something that we should do with uh, great caution. Yeah, so sort of the small yards, high fences idea as well. Great. Thank you. Uh, we also have a question, and I'll stay with you, Craig, if, if you don't mind, uh, about you know, uh, Europe. And, you know, I know, you know, both of your comments have really illustrated how, you know, this is not just a bilateral uh, relationship. And even when there's sort of bilateral tension, it actually spills over to many other areas uh, in the world. And so, you know, the questioner, you know, highlights that, you know, as far, you know, there was recently some sanctioning of Chinese officials, which Europe, Europe then followed the lead. Uh, and then, you know, China then sanctions, you know, European officials, I think they sanctioned, you know, like sort of the order of magnitude was much higher. I forget the, the details. Um, but it was like they sanctioned way more number of officials than, than the European, uh, which suggests that 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 relationship actually is a little bit on the rocks. And they used recently had an investment treaty. Um, uh, is that in danger, do you think, with this conflict over the officials? Or do you think that treaty will maintain in its current form? Well, there's certainly been a uh, sudden uh, downward trend in China-EU uh, relations. And uh, I think that that's been going on for a long time. Um, but uh, that and that different uh, European countries look at uh, China through their own historic lens uh, and the historic lens of, uh, say, the Greeks and that of the Scandinavians or the Balts or, or, or the uh, uh, the Poles would be very, very different. Um, so coming up with a common European position uh, on China is very difficult. But recently they did so in sanctioning four uh, Chinese officials who they allege were involved in 
um, uh, Xinjiang uh, repression. And the Chinese reacted by sanctioning 24 Europeans, including think tanks, academics, and um, uh, European parliamentarians. Now, the Europeans are not used to that uh, and uh, reacted to that uh, quite uh, poorly. Now, it is those same Europeans, uh, parliamentarians, that are going to have to ratify uh, the uh, Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. And so one um, can wonder the Im impact that this will have on that agreement, whether it will be ratified by the European uh, parliaments. Um, I think that, um, that the Chinese overreached uh, in their um, excessive uh, uh, and disproportionate uh, retaliation, um, and that that shocked the Europeans. So let's see where this goes. Um, but uh, the U.S. Uh, it, it certainly helped the U.S.-EU uh, dialogue uh, on China, and Washington and Brussels are are uh, talking um, yet more. Uh, vigorously. And I think that you'll see that in the G7 uh, discussions uh, coming up as well. So it's not only regional, transatlantic, uh, but also uh, multilateral going into the G7. Great. Thank you. Um, I have a question, uh, Alex. It's maybe a little bit outside your uh Air of expertise, but we'll, we'll give we'll give it a shot anyways. I think you might be able to, you know. It's sort of I'm very curious about this as well myself. So the questioner asks, you know, we talked about jobs created by China trade and Chinese companies, um, and you know your very rigorous, uh, you know, analyses and projections of that. I'm curious, how does that compare to jobs from Europe and Canada? Is there any information or analyses on that? Um, yeah, so the United States uh, is highly integrated with, with Canada and indeed within North America. Um, so North American supply chains are, are, you know, the strongest, some of the strongest in the world. Um, the relationship with the EU is similar uh, in, in that it's a little, it's somewhere in between North America and China. Um, so, so the, the the links between the United States and Canada are are extraordinary. There's two very very integrated economies. Um, the links between the, the United States and the EU are are strong. They're perhaps more for historic reasons stronger than than with, with China. Um, the one thing I would say there though is that um, the extent to which the Chinese economy is forecast to grow uh, does does outstrip. Um, the EU and Canada by by some margin. Um, so China's economic growth has already been extraordinary. It, it is forecast to continue to be somewhat extraordinary. Um, and sometimes I think people have a tendency to over overplay this idea of the slowing down in growth in China. Growth is slowing down uh, as a growth rate, but in dollar terms, that you know, as your economy gets bigger. Um, you know that that growth rate as a raw growth figure tends to look smaller because in dollar terms it, it's it's still it's still the same. Um, so one percent of growth on a on an economy that's a size of one billion versus one million is is quite different. Um, and China's growth rate is going to only slow to about four point five percent over the next ten years. That's not exactly not exactly a slow pace of growth. Um, so I, I would say there that um, the, the stronger relationship in terms of trade and investment already exists between Canada and to some extent the EU. The potential for that with China is is much much bigger in going forward. The can potential I, to grow. Can I with add China. just a little bit to that? We 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 have a tendency to define jobs in a certain way as manufacturing jobs and agricultural jobs. But the fact of the matter is uh, that a, a lot of the new job creation is going to be in the services industry. We were looking at uh, uh, the export statistics uh, from Florida recently, and uh, Florida exports, uh, in terms of jobs, twice as many jobs to China in the services sector than it does in the manufacturing sector. So uh, when we talk about jobs, uh, we mustn't uh, forget about Chinese students coming to the United States, Chinese tourists coming to the United States, uh, Chinese consumption of uh, uh, American uh, media and the jobs uh, that they create. Uh, and I think that that's really important. Uh, that 
that we recall that it's not only about uh, exports of physical goods, uh, but that indeed uh, services is making a larger and larger percentage of, uh, of that total job uh, uh, production. And we must keep in mind also that a lot of those jobs are to low-income Americans, uh, uh, be it in the hotel or the restaurant industry uh, and others. So let's not, let, let's, let's uh, keep a real definition of jobs here rather than our old framework uh, of uh, manufactured jobs and agricultural jobs only. It's, uh, we have to keep this in the proper perspective. And uh, China's contributions both on the manufactured side, the energy side, uh, the agricultural side, but especially the services side is important and will only grow in the future. Yeah. Th- Go ahead. Do you have some more, something more on that, Alex? Yeah. I just add that, that there's also often, um, you know, there's there's increasing talk of um, repatriating supply chains and repatriating um, manufacturing production, and that may have that may be due to more than just economic factors. But one thing I would highlight there is that um, the repatriation of manufacturing supply chains to the United States is not going to create a lot of jobs going forward, and a lot of that reflects actually increased automation and robotics. So as, as you know, if you were to bring a lot of the factories that are in China and linked to U.S. supply chains back to the United States, that isn't going to stimulate employment very much in the United States. A lot of that will just be done by robots and machines going forward. And uh, increasingly, we're going to see a decline in manufacturing employment as a share of total employment because of automation trends more than anything else. You know, this general point that to change our frameworks about what employment is and to really incorporate service uh, jobs in that is is hugely important uh, to think about going forward. And that, you know, relates as well to the Chinese domestic situation and how they've been trying to actually, you know, shift from much more of a manufacturing economy to service and consumption-based economy. Uh, and there's a couple questions actually on that, that topic uh, that relate to sort of the domestic situation in China and how that relates to the growth of the Chinese domestic economy. Uh, so one is about the willingness to improve labor and environmental work standards. You know, there's lots of this um, studies of, you know, for, you know, countries overcoming the middle income trap and the need to improve on that to increase the domestic, uh, you know, domestic balance of trade across different industries. And then also about information flow within China and how that is has decreased recently in recent number of years and how that affects productivity. So what would your comments on those sort of China domestic situation and productivity across sectors? Yeah, I would say that there's a rip-roaring debate uh, in China uh, on this subject. And uh, I think it behooves us uh, to uh, cheer on uh, those who are... Uh, asking for higher wages and uh, a middle-class lifestyle uh, and um, who are uh, unhappy uh, with labor protections that are offered in law but are, are seldom enforced. And um, that, I think, is uh, uh, something uh, that, that has, indeed, global uh, implications. Um, and so the... The, the faster wages rise in China, uh, the better working conditions are in China, the more China will import and China will begin to look on a trading or on an economic basis, less investment driven, less uh, net export driven and more con- internal domestic consumption driven, the better off we all are, uh, especially Chinese people. Uh, and that's something that we should really uh, cheer on. Um, and I think uh, uh, an appropriate subject for multilateral um, uh, discussions under the uh, IMF uh, or regional discussions, uh, be it APEC or bilateral discussions uh, between the U.S. and China. I think that's all uh, very relevant and important. Um, China needs to move a couple percentage points of GDP from net investment to 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 increase consumption every year, uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do, but a very important goal that um, we must keep our eyes on. I would just add that um, you know China is continuing to rebalance its economy. Um, it's continuing to shift growth more towards domestic consumption and 
business investment. And that is generally a positive thing, not just for China, but for the world economy. Now, there are areas where China could do more so that, you know, the last um, five-year plan still doesn't seem to have anything in regards to reform of state-owned enterprises. But generally, there is a trend to try and shift more, to shift away from a highly government-oriented investment model, more towards private sector business investment and with that consumption that and an sense. increase in living standards. We're almost out of well. time. We've got a little, a little over a minute left. And as the last question, Craig, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you, uh, put you, you on the spot. Let's say that you know, Ambassador Tai calls you up and says, you know, we're, we're thinking about possibly changing some of the tariff structure, changing some relation, you know, trade relations with China. Well, what's your recommendation to her? I think um, in looking at uh, what the Chinese have agreed to in the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment with the EU, that there's uh, room to maneuver here uh, and that uh, we should bring home uh, the phase two negotiations uh, by the end of the phase one agreement uh, uh, a little bit less than a year from now, February of 2022, uh, so that we can um, uh, remove uh, the tariffs. Uh, we must not um, uh, accept that these tariffs are there permanently to contort uh, the bilateral uh, economic and, and political relationship. Such a, uh, such a conclusion uh, would, would really lead to uh, systemic instability and it would not allow us to write uh, this this ship already we see many American companies uh, who particularly new American companies that have developed over the last few years they're not even thinking about the world's fastest growing market because of the tariffs and uh, the opportunity co costs uh, uh, there are very high uh, we cannot accept uh, that the um, these surcharges on trade are a normal a routine or a good thing, uh, we must address the underlying uh, economic uh, market access barriers in China and remove uh, the artificial barriers as soon as possible to get back to a sustainable growth uh, for workers, farmers, and ranchers in both countries. Great. Well, thank you for the very sort of balanced approach and, and way to an optimistic way to end our uh, discussion. Really appreciate you, Craig, and Alex joining us to discuss this important topic of economic costs of decoupling, uh, as well as introduce the really important report that your two organizations uh, pre pre presented. So thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us in China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.